You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Episode 125, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. Today's expert I'm delighted to have is Dr. Eric Bricker. He's a former internist who runs the ahealthcarez.com website and video series on YouTube, where he goes through basically how insurance works in a third-party system. He cut his teeth with a company that he created with some partners, where they essentially formed a navigation portal that would help patients, uh, generally employees, find healthcare services in their area, which would help them get directed to low-cost alternatives to whatever they're getting as for their care. So he understands the system inside and out, how the third-party payers work, and value-based care, and all the lingo, and the stuff that I think we haven't gotten into the weeds much in the show, but today we're going to get into the weeds a little bit and have a better understanding of the problems in the third-party system. If you're a physician, you're going to have a little bit better understanding of a lot of the terminology that you hear administrators throw around. If you're a patient, you're going to hear stuff that you've probably heard in the news and understand a little bit better about where we're headed and where we've been. It is a little bit longer episode, so I'm going to keep this introduction short. But first, a word from our sponsor. Need access to cash at fair rates? Doc to doc Lending believes that when debt can be avoided, it should be. They also realize, however, that sometimes borrowing is necessary to help doctors overcome short-term cash issues to improve long-term personal financial health. Founded and led by fellow doctors, all of whom start out as cash-strapped residents, doc to doc Lending exists not only to meet doctors in their moments of need, but to do so in a way that assesses and appreciates each doctor borrower as only physicians can. Apply for the loan you need with doc to doc Lending at drpodcastnetwork.com slash doc to doc That's doc, the number two, doc. Finally, a quick reminder that you can find the show notes at theparadox.com slash 125. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe. But now on to the show 
on why value-based care provides neither value nor care. Enjoy. Well, hey, I'm here with my new friend, Dr. Eric Bricker. He's the founder and CMO of Texas Family Insurance and of the, I guess we'll call it a video series of ahealthcarez.com. I first was introduced to Dr. Bricker mainly through LinkedIn, which I mean, I can say, honestly, you're probably the only person I've ever like had interactions with on uh, on LinkedIn. I don't really find much information that's useful on that on that social media sure. app. But I have with yours because you have lots of really great videos. And so I recommend anyone to go to a Healthcare Z to find out a little bit more about sort of healthcare and nuts and bolts and sort of how it works. But thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Dr. Larson. It's a pleasure. Well, you know, you've had some videos recently and I, and I want to, we've talked many times on the show about third-party payers. And in general, I think most people who listen to the show regularly understand that, and you know, anyone who actually interacts and thinks about it for a second, sort of how, what's going on when they go to the, see the doctor, is that you're not actually paying the physician. You may, uh, or the hospital, you might pay a copay, but you know that some insurance carrier or someone else is making, paying the bill, whether it's, you know, a government payer or a commercial payer. Sure. Uh, probably no, I'm guessing not a lot of people listen to the show who don't pay any of their bills, but it's possible. And so there's this third, so a third party is paying the bills. It doesn't happen in many parts of our economy. You can, you know, if you get a car accident, a car wreck or something, you have your car insurance will pay something. Sure. But for the most part, when you're making, you know, any sort of commercial activity, you're actually paying the bill for whatever it is, paying the plumber or whoever. So healthcare is just weird in that almost all the interaction is through a third party. Yep. And so that is sort of like the general way most of the care gets uh, paid for. Uh, but we haven't really talked about the specifics of the kind of the plans and the programs for how to make it better. So I guess, you know, could you give a, a brief synopsis, if that's even possible, of of the, you know, I guess Medicare is sort of when it kind of began. I know there's private health insurance before then, but uh, once in the, that began in the 60s, kind of talk about how we got to there. And then maybe just up to the HMOs, we'll just kind of stop there. But then that sort of sets a framework for how third-party payers sort of became a part, an integral part to the healthcare system in the United States. Yeah, so, uh, so that's great. I will try to make it as brief and as painless as possible to do a history <laughs> of third-party payers in America. Go. So <laughs> hold on. If, if, you're, if you're having insomnia and you're having a hard time falling asleep, please tune in because I'm sure to put you, that, put you out right away. Uh, but listen, it, to your point, though, it's uh, jokes aside. It's super important, right, because it creates um, a bunch of, of, of dynamics that doctors and patients have to deal with on a, on a, on a daily basis. Real, it actually goes back to – so third-party payment for healthcare actually goes back all the way to, uh, to FDR uh, and the New Deal – where to your point, before that it was just you know cash pay, and you know back when WW Mayo started Mayo Clinic out in you know Minnesota and all that stuff, it was you know they kind of had a sliding scale where the doctor just kind of looked at the way you were dressed, and if you were dressed nicer, they would charge you more, and if you didn't have any money, then they would take your, you know they'd take you know eggs or chickens or whatever you, they were going to pay you in, right? And then during the New Deal, FDR was like you know let's actually have a national healthcare plan. And actually the first country to do it was actually Prussia under Otto von Bismarck. And so they actually wanted to sort of copy that because of all the horrible things that were going on in Europe. The idea of having like government sponsored healthcare, they actually thought it was a pretty good idea. The, of course, every doctor in America, and there's, you know, tons of history on this that I won't get into, but of course they were like, you know, this is socialism, this is communism, you know, this is, you know, the, 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 
you know, this, the Russian Revolution had already happened. So they're like, this is this is the, this is the just the beginning of the end in America uh, yeah. of, of, the, of the, the communist wave. And so, it, you know, third party payment for what's my point in saying that third party payment in America has been con- has been controversial since the beginning. It has it has never been non-controversial uh, and it probably never will be non-controversial. And so FDR was like, you know what, I got to kind of choose between healthcare for all and Social Security and chose Social Security. I, he's like, I'd rather get him checks. And so he got people over 65 retirement checks. And then Truman tried to get universal uh, health care coverage and couldn't get it done. And nothing happened during Eisenhower. And then Kennedy actually wanted to do it. He couldn't get it done. So when when finally, when. Uh, LBJ passed Medicare. I, and then I was wrong about this. I thought LBJ came up with the idea. LBJ did not come up, come up with the idea at all. All he was doing was carrying the torch of previous Democratic administrations who had tried to do this beforehand. So then that brings up the question, okay, so fine. So Medicare gets passed, and I think it was like 1964. But then where in the world did this employer-sponsored third-party payment come from? And where that came from was that they, before that, they were trying, they, the Democrats in America, because they were always the ones who were trying to spearhead this effort, this non-political statement. I'm just trying to speak history here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, sure. They were always trying to find some way to get the government to sponsor in- uh, health insurance. And if they couldn't do it directly, then their sort of compromise was to indirectly do it through people's employers. And that's when they decided to give employers the tax break on the health insurance benefits. Right. So the reason why the only reason why employers provide health insurance to employees is because they can pay for it with pre-tax dollars. It's not counted as income to the employees. They don't have to pay payroll tax on it. If they if all of a sudden the government decided to tax benefits like they tax payroll, employers would stop providing it. Right. So that is a huge it's larger than the than the mortgage deduction. It is the largest tax exempt loophole in the entire tax code. And it was put there in place on purpose as part of trying to get Americans healthcare um, before Medicare. So fine, you guys probably heard all the story about, okay, well, there was wage, for, wage freezes during World War II, so employers had to find a way to entice employees with benefits. And so that's where you started getting companies like Cigna and Aetna and Blue Cross was actually invented for teachers in Dallas, Texas by the surgeons at the Baylor healthcare system here in Dallas. So, so Blue Cross was invented in Dallas and it was invented by surgeons. So health insurance was invented by doctors. Okay. So that's important to remember. Health insurance was invented by doctors. Number two, health insurance wasn't invented by all doctors. Health insurance was invented by surgeons. And that makes sense, right? Because I, I have a, I have one of my health, my a healthcare sees healthcare finance videos. I have one of my healthcare finance videos that says fee for service insurance based primary care is dumb and it is dumb. Right. It is dumb. Like it makes sense for us for you to have insurance for a surgeon. Right. Because a surgeon wants a steady stream of income. If you're dying of appendicitis, the surgeon is like morally not going to like not operate on you. Right. Right. And so they're still going to operate on you. But they're like, this sucks. I have no way to like guarantee any income when I just have people on death's door coming to me and I got to operate on them. I can't earn a living. And so they invented insurance. So that they could find a way to get a steady stream of income and they would not have to have this moral dilemma every time somebody came to them needing an operation. And so, yeah. and then it, and then it grew. And I'm not, listen, if I was a surgeon, I'd do the exact same thing. I'm not judging them at all. So, so we ended up having this third part party payment of which makes sense for some of medicine, like catastrophic stuff. It doesn't really make sense for the other part of medicine, like the primary care stuff. And the analogy that everybody uses is like, well, you got car insurance for accidents, but you don't have car insurance for gas. 
right? Yeah, we've essentially, changes, we've, yeah. we've essentially, or oil changes, right? We've essentially created health insurance for gasoline and oil yeah. changes. And so it's like, well, if you relied upon a third party to buy gasoline, then buying gasoline would be just like the way getting healthcare is in America. But it's not. It's a, so you got to remember that. So healthcare is not a consumer good. By definition, because of third party payment, it is a business to business transaction. So healthcare finance is a business to business transaction. It is not a consumer transaction. The vast majority right. of all the money changing hands is business to business. And we talk about the consumer and out of pocket costs and blah, blah, blah. That is a drop in the bucket. That is minuscule. When you talk about overall healthcare financing, the vast majority is a business to business transaction by a third party, whether that third party is the government or that third party is really the employer. You got to remember, it's not the insurance company, right? Whether you're fully insured or a self-funded employer, the insurance company is just Visa or MasterCard. They just facilitate the transaction. The insurance company, so more than half of employees in America are in a self-funded plan, which means the insurance company is providing what's called administrative services only, which means they, in fact, United Healthcare does not even call themselves an insurance company. They call themselves a healthcare services company. Because insurance, by definition, is the transference of risk. United Healthcare does not want to bear risk. The employer bears the risk. So if, any, if anything, when I talk about insurance, I actually don't even talk about insurance. I call it employer-sponsored healthcare because that's what it is. Yeah. It's, it, right. it, it, it's just, you, to get mad at insurance is like getting mad at Visa or MasterCard, right? That's not – no, it is, it's a very expensive Visa and MasterCard. It's a Visa and MasterCard that takes 20% instead of 6 Okay, so it's a very expensive Visa card, but ultimately they just and that and that believe me, and they're just like Visa and Mastercard. They want more high dollar transactions because all they're doing is taking a percentage. And and you look at United Healthcare's stock price, and you look at the cost of healthcare, and you can see that healthcare costs going up helps insurance companies. Health insurance companies do not want healthcare costs to go down; they want them to go up. So right. they, they pretend and, they pretend like they want them to go down, but they want them to go up. And those are those are I was going to say those are actually really excellent points. And those are ones we talked we touched on the show too, because like with physician benefit margins, PBM uh, PBMs, they have every incentive to have expensive medications oh, yeah. in their formularies, That's right? Exactly right. Because they are getting a percentage back, even if you call it a rebate, a kickback, whatever you want to call it. I mean, they're getting they make their money actually in selling expensive drugs. That's right. Not actually saving money to the employer. But I guess, you know, I've never even thought of insurance that way either, where it is really until recently when I had Katie Tepton on my show a few episodes ago, where she basically unbundles insurance. So uh, she helps people become self-funded. So in, your employer provides an insurance product. And so I guess the way I think about it is, you know, you buy a Blue Cross plan and it includes 10 different components. Let's say there's imaging and labor laboratories and hospitals and stopgap insurance and all this sort of stuff. And so she'll just actually, well, I'll just do it all and just I'll negotiate all that separately and save you money because the bundled price is actually overpriced or, you know, I can do right. better than the bundled price, right. right? And so uh, it's just more work, but, you know, you can do it. Uh, but either, but essentially, it's still the employer paying that price, whether you just pay it to one company or have some or you figure it out or have someone else figure it out on your on your part behalf, just doing it all separately. Essentially, it's the same thing, right? The employer is the one paying for all the stuff. That's right. They're incentivized through the tax code, uh, through various measures, like you mentioned, with, you know, there's wage controls and things like that. But essentially, uh, it's still, it's the employer just paying stuff in. The employee just gets things and they want it that way because if they did it on their own, it'd be way more expensive because, you know, they don't have the tax advantages. But you can immediately see the problem with the system in that you don't, the people who are getting the service are really not involved in any way in sort of how the payment goes. 
Well, and, and to and your so, point, right? The people who are receiving care are not the customer. Okay, the right. customer. Yes, exactly. Cu- and that's the whole reason why it's so bad. It's because the customer is the employer. The customer is not the employee and their family members. How you know? What are some examples of that? Customer service at health insurance companies is horrible. It's always been horrible. It's all. It always will be horrible. Okay, what industry? What business could survive? treating its customers as badly as health insurance companies treat their own members. What no business could survive that. Why is that? Because the employees aren't their customers. The customers are the VPs of HR, the heads of benefits, the insurance brokers, the benefits consultants, and the CFOs that write the checks. Those are their customers. And the, and the health insurance companies treat those people exceedingly well. They take them on fancy trips. They've got a fancy box at Cowboys Stadium, AT&T Stadium. They take them on uh, vacations where they want to you know, hear their feedback at the med spa. I mean, it is, <laughs> if you want to, like insurance companies are fully capable of treating their members well. They just don't want to spend the money on it because it doesn't give them a good return on investment. They right. absolutely yeah. could, they could, you're, you're, oh, my call wait time was an hour. They could make it five minutes if they wanted to. They choose not to. They choose not to. So it's yeah, because you, this, because they the don't decision care. Makers aren't the customers. Like, they right. don't care. Yeah, I mean, they don't care. Yeah. They need to, they need to basically keep the customers just happy enough that they don't complain too much to HR, so that HR doesn't have to deal with it. That that it's is sort of, that is the threshold. It's like the cable companies, right? Like the cable companies have a natural monopoly in the sense that they usually have some sort of agreement with the municipality saying no one else can lay cables. So we're the only one, you know, Comcast or Charter, whoever, you know. And so our customer service will be just good enough so that you don't like get direct TV. <laughs> or even before, they didn't even care about that. They didn't have anything. That's right. Uh, yeah. And you got to understand too that there is an, an incredibly low choice when it comes to health insurance companies for employers. You essentially have Blue Cross United, Cigna, and Aetna. That's it. You got four. Right. That's it. And that, and, and if you have, and if you're a big nationwide employer, you really only have kind of two. It's really only Blue Cross and United. I mean, kind of Aetna, but if you're a really big national employer, it's really only two because the Blue Cross and the United discounts are nationwide and they're fairly decent, but the Aetna contracted rates and certainly the Cigna contracted rates aren't that good, not compared to Blue Cross and United. So yeah. like, you're, so at the end of the day, Blue Cross and United are like, okay, fine. What are you going to do? Who are you going to go to? <laughs> you don't have a lot of choices here. So, right. so that, that, that allows them to also get away with much of what they've been able to get away with. That's, sort of, that's a great backdrop in sort of the discussion of you know, what people are trying to do to fix things, right? I mean, I think everyone recognizes there's problems in care, right? Like you mentioned, customer service is terrible. Uh, there are people who, you know, physicians don't like it because they're trying to fight to get what you'd consider standard of care because, you know, like standard chemotherapy care. And now they have some guy who's saying, you can't do it. You need to get prior authorization. It needs to go through, they have to go through three tiers of treatment before they're allowed to get this, this you know, whatever you're, right. you're ordering. And that you ask the person why, and they're like, well, I don't know. It's just on my algorithm because I'm, you know, I don't know anything about medicine. And you ask, you finally get to it through to a doctor to try and get prior authorization. And you're talking to a dermatologist, you know, you're like a urologist. And that's just the person they have on, on staff or whatever at the insurance company. And eventually maybe get it done, but it's, you've wasted, you know, a week's worth of time or something and for someone's treatment. Uh, you know, that'd be an example of the physician 
course, patients are upset because they're for whatever reason things are getting denied. And at, to your point, the they're upset with the insurance company because they're the ones hired by the employer to sort of set the plan and to enforce it, and you know they set the price and everything. So they kind of set the rules, but the employer is the one essentially is kind of the one who's really responsible. But they've they've sort of washed their hands of it, saying, "Well, it's just you know up to whatever." Blue Cross Blue Shield. That's right. And they and, and also that's actually that's not that's this part of the wink wink nudge nudge agreement between the employer and the health insurance company, though, because basically the employer needs somebody to, you know, I'm sure many of your listeners and you yourself living in Michigan. I'm not sure if you're a Red Wings fan or not, but there's a position in hockey called the goon, right? The guy who goes out <laughs> and beats up everybody on the ice. OK, and the employer knows that they need somebody to play the healthcare goon for them because somebody has to say no. And the employer doesn't want to say no. And that way the employer can kind of wash their hands and say, look, you know, we don't, we can't get involved in your health information. You know, one, it's against the law, right? Oh, you got colon cancer. Oh, we have to fire you now. Right? You can't do that. Right. Yeah. You can't do that. So you have HIPAA privacy officers at the employer who can know about this, but they can't be involved in you know hiring and firing decisions, et cetera, et cetera. So they that that's part of the value that the health insurance company brings to the employer. It says, look, we'll be the goon, and we'll we'll be the we'll be the mean guy, we'll be the bully, but you're going to have to pay us money for that. That's part of their you know essentially ASO fee, and it's never called that. Like I said, it's a wink, wink, nudge, nudge thing. But the employer doesn't want to do that because the employer would have to say no to their employees and their employee, their, the employer themselves would have to be the goon. And they don't want to do that. They'd rather have somebody yeah. else do it for them. And oh, by the way, oh, by the way, that is exactly why more people are now on Medicare Advantage plans through health insurance company instead of traditional Medicare. So now about 30% of people on Medicare Advantage plans instead of traditional Medicare. Traditional Medicare is just fee for service. There's no prior authorizations. There's no networks. With Medicare Advantage, there is prior authorization. There is networks. What is the fastest growing area of health insurance anywhere in America is Medicare Advantage because it's free as opposed to traditional Medicare where you got to pay your, your Part B premium. Okay, The federal government loves Medicare Advantage because it allowed because no politician would ever want to say no to their constituents. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so now they can be like, well, we're just going to send them a thousand bucks a month per senior, 12,000 bucks a year. And now we, the government don't have to be the bad guy. Now the insurance company is going to be the bad guy and we can blame the insurance company and blah, blah, blah. And everybody gets to beat up on them. And everybody's happy because the insurance company's like, I don't care. Fine, beat me up. You're paying me a thousand bucks a month per member. Right. So and, and then not surprisingly, the legislation favors insurance companies, whatever, whatever it might be, right? That role of being the goon provides value to the federal government, to the state governments, you know, for state run. You know, every every Medicaid program in America is Medicaid managed care through like Centene or Molina, right? They're run through an insurance company. Right. They don't run it themselves. You know, Medicare, I mean, eventually traditional Medicare will be, eventually traditional Medicare will be 30%. Medicare Advantage will be 70%. Make no mistake that all of these things, so all these things that you mentioned, right, that happened in the 90s. This is nothing new. All we're doing is just repeating what happened in the 90s. All I'm saying is with my, uh, we were joking around about my low expectations in healthcare. It's going to get worse before it gets better. There is, there are huge swaths, huge runways for healthcare to get much, much worse before it gets better. And when I say worse, I mean for patient care. I mean, uh-huh. hold on to your hats. If you think it's bad now, 
is going to get 10 times worse. It's interesting when I started the show and I tell people this when I, you know, they're asking me, well, what have you learned in the show and stuff? And I would say, the interesting thing is, is I was extremely pessimistic about medicine, like just, uh, just in general, you know, and I'm far more optimistic today than I am before. Not that overall there's going to be massive, you know, legislation that's going to be great beneficial or there's going to change the system, but just that I've met and talked to so many people who are doing things that are really, really innovative and delivering care in great ways, despite the system, right? But uh, when you look at the entire system, I can't, I can't uh, agree with you anymore. So let's talk about some specifics. Uh, you had a great video recently where you talked, we just sort of went over the, the various the various ways people are trying to reform the healthcare system, right? I mean, everyone's always trying to figure out ways to make it less expensive and provide better value and, and, and align incentives. There's always like the buzzword. We need align incentives right. so that we're paying for things and actually making people better, right? It's, which is total crazy talk that you actually have to say, we have to try and make things better. That should be like a basic feature of any sort of business <laughs> that you're actually providing value to people for a good price. The interesting thing I found about, I thought about your show that you did is that it didn't really matter, and which I found fascinating, whether you have bundle payments or socialized medicine or all these different sort of plans, they all kind of had the same inherent problems. And I wonder if you could just kind of go into sort of list the ones you talked about and to discuss, uh, you know, what you found. The issue with value-based care, okay, so th- and this, this gets to, this is just a buzzword. Okay, listen, value-based t- care is just capitation. Okay, they just don't want to call it that. We've already, we, we've already this is not yeah, our first right. rodeo. Okay, so anytime anybody's just healthcare is so, especially healthcare finance, is filled with euphemisms. Okay, so the, one of the first things that your listeners, in my opinion, need to learn from this show tonight is that whatever you hear, like you need to say, okay, what does that, re- what does that really mean? Okay, because whatever they say it is is not what it really is. You need to you need to figure out what that euphemism is. Okay, so so value based care is a euphemism for capitation. They don't want to call it that, but that's exactly what it is, okay? So what does that mean? That means that the hospital absolutely does not want value-based care. Now, of course, the hospital can't say that because what hospital is going to say they don't want to provide (laughs) value, right? But the hospital doesn't want capitation. Right. And it could be and it could be like a bundled payment. Okay, how is a bundled payment capitation? Well, it's like, okay, pre-op, op, op, post-op. Okay, we're gonna give you a capitated amount for that bundle. Capitation, right? So like an ACO, an an accountable care organization. Okay, we're gonna give you a capitated amount per person, per patient within that ACO per month. It's capitation. So the more healthcare they get, you don't get any more money. You just get X amount, right? So the the so so and I, you know they the the people in Washington aren't stupid. They 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 named it uh, you know value based care on purpose so that you know hospitals and doctors couldn't come out against it. But they um, <laughs> but it's just capitation. It's getting away from fee for service, right? So that's there's the, the intersection of what you talked about at the beginning, which is third party payment plus fee for service creates this conundrum that that we're in. So there's two main forces that are being done. There's there's the force against fee-for-service and there's the force against third-party payment. So um, the force against fee-for-service is capitation. So if there's anything that is moving forward in healthcare in America more, it's not that it's not it's not third-party payment going away. So direct primary care, that's like third-party payment going away, right? Because there you have the customer paying the doctor. Okay. That's an example right. of that. 
But really, the vast majority of healthcare finance is actually moving more in the direction of capitation, which they have rebranded as value-based care, right? And so if in value, by the way, value, quote unquote, capitation, it totally works if you're a primary care physician. Like doctors are not a monolith, right? They are a very diverse group. And so there are groups of primary care physicians like Chen Med and Oak Street and all, and there's a, there's a, there's a fair amount of others that take capitated P per beneficiary per month amounts for Medicare Advantage patients. And they are making money hand over fist on that because they can keep them out of the hospital because they can very effectively keep them out of specialist office offices. So capitation <laughs> is a boon for primary care physicians, a boon. Okay. Capitation, you know, value-based care is horrible for hospitals and for specialists. Ain't no other way to cut it, okay? If all of a sudden we waved a magic wand and all the value-based care initiatives went into place, you'd have a bunch of, you know, I hate to say it, anesthesiologists, surgeons, and a whole bunch of other specialists, ENTs, urologists, I mean, they're all surgeons, right? Who their patient volume would go through the floor. It would go through the floor. There will be winners and there are winners and losers in value-based care, just like there were winners and losers in capitation in the 90s. And anybody who doesn't talk about it in those terms, in my opinion, is not calling a spade a spade. And they're just, they're using euphemisms to get around what's really going on. I'm going to stop you for a second, just because I think, you know, to make sure people understand fee for service means that you basically go in and you, there's a payment for every time there's a service provided, right? So, uh, you know, right. it's based on the CBT code, right? You bill a CBT right. code. And so, right. So if you do something, you get paid for it, and which is why if you're a specialist or someone who does procedures, you tend to get more than someone who's seeing office business, do, I don't know what you call it, intellectual work, I suppose you'd say, or like, you know, seeing someone visit. Capitation means that people get, uh, you know, if you have 100 patients in your patient panel, you get paid a monthly fee for having 100 patients, whether you see them one time or 10 times, right? And, 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 maybe and the math is, real, and the math like is real simple on it. It's 1000 bucks a month. You, get, you basically get yep. 1000 bucks a month per person. And you're like, okay, that's that's your budget, and that's that's for everything, you know. That's for their host, you know. That's for their hospitalizations. That's for their specialty care. That's for their primary care. Regardless of how much healthcare they use, you get a thousand bucks a month per person. And so the question really is, like, you can say, well, okay, so if you have a fee for service uh, plan, you can imagine why a physician or hospital or whoever who's you know getting fees would encourage more fees, right? They want as much volume as they can get because the more volume, the more revenue. Uh, it's, and so for the people paying, obviously you're the opposite opinion, right? You want less visits. Uh, with capitation, uh, it doesn't really matter how many times you utilize the services and so you don't really care. Uh, so obviously, as you mentioned, certain people in that system may not do as well. You look at the various systems like, say, the Canadian healthcare system, which is pretty much, I guess you'd say socialized. I guess the question then is, is one obviously controlling healthcare dollars because that's really what the whole point of all this stuff is, right? Does does one actually do a lot better? Is fee-for-service just like wildly way more expensive? And then if you do all capitated, then suddenly you cut the cost significantly. So that's the real question, right? Well, and, and this is, again, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. This has already been done in America successfully. And again, it was W.W. Mayo who founded the Mayo Clinic in the late 1800s was like, I don't want to have my physicians be paid more the more they do, because that's going to create the wrong incentive for them. 
you got to remember that early American or, you know, mid, you know, late 20th century American medicine was, or late 18th century, uh, sorry, 19th century American medicine was highly entrepreneurial. The only reason that W.W. Mayo founded the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota was because he couldn't find any other place to work. He tried to work other places and the doctors ran him out of town. So it's the only reason the Mayo Clinic is in Rochester. Anyway, he was like, these doctors are totally taking advantage of their patients with the informational asymmetry. They're doing stuff to them that they shouldn't be doing and they're charging fee for service. And they're taking advantage of these people in a desperate situation. And W.W. Mayo said to himself, I will never run my clinic that way. And he said, no matter what, our doctors at the Mayo Clinic will be on salary. And he knew that in the late 1800s. Okay, this is not rocket science. What do most academic medical centers in America do? They put their physicians on salary. Cleveland Clinic's on salary. Johns Hopkins is on salary. Okay, what do you do? You separate the remuneration of the physician from the clinical decision making. You separate it. Okay, which means, oh, by the way, the doctor doesn't make more for not doing stuff, right? Because that's the other side of the coin of capitation. You don't want your doctor to be disincentivized to do things because they'll make more money if they don't do stuff to you. You don't want that. What you want is you want the doctor's income completely separated from the clinical decision-making, which happens in America already. It's the minority of America because it's mostly academic medical centers. But in my opinion, and, and oh, by the way, you know, your colleagues in anesthesia will probably like, you know, come burn down my house, right? And there are many other, you know, people, <laughs> rightly so, that will want to burn down my house for saying that. But listen, the surgeons at the Cleveland Clinic are paid a salary. They don't want to be paid fee-for-service. There are many specialists in America who are like, it is not right for a specialist to be paid fee-for-service. It's wrong. Okay? So, and, and they're like, oh, well, you know, nobody does stuff to make more money. I agree. It can be subconscious. It doesn't have to be conscious. It can be subconscious. Okay? So, and it's not, and it's not even this whole like defensive medicine, like that's a bunch of malarkey, right? Because in Texas, we have tort reform, okay? Max damages 250 grand. You can't sue a doctor for more than 250 grand in Texas, okay? And Texas is wow. some of the worst in terms of overutilization, okay? <laughs> so you can't, you can't make that claim. Indiana and Texas have tort reform, where I, I don't know what the limit is in Indiana, but in Texas, it's 250 grand, okay, for, you know, you know pain and suffering. Okay, so you can't say that they're doing it for defensive reasons because malpractice insurance in Texas is dirt cheap compared to most other places. Will we get to a place where our patients demand that we be on salary and not fee for service? Will we come to a place where our patients demand that? I hope so. I don't want the government telling me to do that. I want patients to, to vote with their feet. And like, I don't, I don't want you making a decision about my chemotherapy based upon how much money you're making. I don't want you making a decision about my aortic valve repair based upon how much money you're making. You know, I mean, that's, I, and, and I just, and I know that there are gazillions of doctors who will listen to this and they, they will hate me for saying that. But that, I mean, but that, but that's my opinion. I mean, that's my line in the sand that I'm putting down and that's okay. Well, I, I mean, I, I can tell you, you know, I watch this robotic surgeries we do now in the, in the OR and there's. You know, I think you can you could argue on some level that it's maybe superior for a few different procedures, but we're doing robotic gallbladders, right? We're doing robotic. Oh yeah, hernias. oh. Where I went to medical and, school, and the they, University of Illinois, they do robotic gallbladders like crazy. I know. And it's, <laughs> they get and I, the surgeon, they say they get seventy percent more for that same surgery. Oh yeah, it's, you. I mean, if you can the use the Da Vinci, way more. Oh yeah, use yeah. the Da Vinci, yeah. please do. Right. And it's, <laughs> I suppose it's fun for them to do, and so it, you know, the 
the patient's like, oh, wow, I've got a robot or something. Right. But uh, it takes longer and there's, you know, it every way it costs more money, right? It just, and you're not, I can't, I cannot imagine outcomes are significantly different for most of those surgeries. I mean, there's some surgeries I grant they're Right, prostate's the big one. Yeah, and that's probably legitimate. And there are probably some others that, you know, and I, I don't discount the fact that there maybe it does make things easier. But you, when you look at the, the cost standpoint, I, the, the interesting thing I found is that one video you said is that it didn't seem to matter even if you, like if you just got rid of fee for service, it didn't really make a difference like with the amount of healthcare dollars spent. And to your point with uh, the defensive medicine aspect, it doesn't, you probably can't tell a difference between Texas and Louisiana and, you know, Indiana as far as, you know, utilization, right? I mean, it, it's probably, at least if it, if it's different, it's probably not significantly so that due to like, you know, legislation or um, litigation problems with malpractice. Well, and this is where the issues around it being so expensive really come high ticket things and, you know, death's door sort of stuff. And so it's important when you're talking about healthcare costs and these situations, et cetera, et cetera. It's important that we don't talk about healthcare in generalities because it is not a monolith. It's very, it's very different in, in terms of various different situations. Okay, so fine. You know, I am very much of the opinion that for the vast majority of healthcare services that are not that do not have to do with life or death matters, that are not emergencies, right? Right. You, it's like 98%. That's probably, right. 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 But it stratifies, right? It's the 80 20 rule. 80% of healthcare only costs right. 20% and 20% of healthcare costs yeah, 80%. Yeah. So for the 80% of healthcare that costs the 20%, like you don't have, you, you can, you can have a free market run that. Like you can do that. Okay. And if anything, I would say that the free market need, there needs to be more competition in that area. The patient comes first, right? We were told that on the first day of medical school, told on the first day of residency patient comes first. So I'm saying everything on this podcast for patients. And a lot of the things that we've already said on this, on this podcast make doctors mad, but it's the patients that come first. It doesn't, of course, doctors are going to be mad. We have to make doctors mad if we're going to do the right thing for patients. It was the same thing back in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. You have to make doctors mad in order to do the right thing for patients. Okay. So let's talk about doing the right thing for patients. So for the 80% of situations that only cost 20% of money, you need more competitions. You need large hospital systems to be broken up. You need the health insurance companies to be broken up. You need more competition, not less. You need less regulation, not more, okay? That's what you want. But for the very high-priced stuff for emergencies, this where there, where there is not choice, there is, it's called inelastic demand, right? Where the demand curve goes straight up and down because no matter what, if you're on death's door, you will pay anything, right? And this is where we have seen our physician colleagues take advantage of that. We have seen our physician colleagues, literally my own family has been charged a physician fee by a radiologist, a professional physician, a physician reading fee on an MRI of $5,500 for a reading fee. Okay. I've been charged by an anesthesiologist for the professional fee for propofol, $4,400. I personally have been probably worth it. Okay. Well, yeah. you know, but, but the point is, is that we have doctors in inelastic healthcare situations that absolutely take advantage of it. Absolutely. And they, and they try to separate themselves from it. And a lot of the physicians don't know what they charge, but that's willful ignorance. They don't want to know what they charge. All they know is that they get money deposited into their bank account, but they let the business managers and the CFO and the private equity guys charge $5,000 to read an MRI. 
And they say, oh, I don't know. I don't deal with that. Right? That's willful ignorance. Okay. Yep. How in the world? I mean, how in, I mean, it's, it's literally like 1.7 RVUs. They're charging $5,500 for 1.7 RVUs. Okay. So we as physicians have done a bad job of keeping our colleagues in check. How in the world could we as physicians let our colleagues do that? I mean, we can't. We as a, we as, we as a profession lose our credibility when we don't stop our colleagues from doing that. Okay. So, we, I mean, that, that, is, that is inexcusable. So what do you do? When you get into life or death situations, you absolutely have to have price regulation. Absolutely. You have to. Let me give you an example. In the state of Texas, which hates regulation, this state hates regulations with a passion. You know where there are price controls? Tow trucks. There are price controls on tow trucks. Because if you're in an accident and a tow truck shows up, that tow truck can charge you whatever they want. And you will pay it. And guess what? In the state of Texas, you can't charge more than $450 for that. There's a price control on it. So you mean to tell me the state that hates regulation more than any other state in America has price controls? Yes, it's exactly true. So you have to do that. You have to in certain situations. Because otherwise, you will get physicians and hospitals that will fleece patients on death's door. And we see that all the time. We see it with chemotherapy. We see it with surgery. We see it with professional services, with radiologists, with anesthesiologists, with pathologists. Okay, so we so unless we go out and we get our own colleagues in check, we will have price controls. It's inevitable. I always feel like the problem with this is the reforms are always big, huge, sweeping general reforms. Right. And so no one says, oh, we'll just separate what's emergency, what's not emergency, because then you have to have someone decide what is and isn't right. And and that's sort of the devil's always in the details with all these things. And so I'm not saying that that's impossible, because I think lots of people say, you know, we need health insurance. But for catastrophic things, and you know, then it comes down to what is catastrophe, right? Is it a cancer diagnosis, or is it me showing up in sepsis in the ER, right? I mean, I think, you know, where do you actually draw the line, and how do you figure out those controls? A lot of the people think if you just have not more skin in the game because copays doesn't fix it, but if you actually have, let's say, just eliminated employers from the entire situation, let's say there wasn't any tax advantage from employers That's right. or. And, and which is, I mean, honestly, that's like what forty percent of the United States now. We, I think, where you said fifty percent that actually don't have employer-based plans anymore. Uh, so it's becoming, you know, with more ten ninety nines, more gig economy. It seems like that's sort of going away. That's right. That'll and that'll happen. That'll so what will eventually happen. I mean, this is part of this is part of the Democrat playbook. Okay, so the it's since FDR. So yes, they are moving. You know, eventually they're going to move, you know, Medicare down from 65 to 60 and they're going to keep going over time and then they're going to keep expanding the Obamacare subsidies so that more people just get uh, health insurance. You know, you buy it just like you buy car insurance, right? It's an individual consumer product. And eventually we'll get to a place where employers, not all employers, but most employers, it won't look like Canada's system. It'll Eventually our system will look like Great Britain's, where in Great Britain you still have private insurance but it's very small and it's mostly the national health service, which is very large. So eventually we're going to get to that. And what'll happen is, is that it'll be incremental and they'll keep lowering the Medicare age slowly. And then they'll keep increasing the subsidies for the individual uh, coverage plans. And then they'll squeeze out the employers in the middle. So eventually health insurance will, I mean, it might take 50 years. I mean, I'm not saying it's going to happen next week, Um, but eventually employer-sponsored health insurance will go away and it will be an individual means-tested, government-subsidized thing that you buy, just like you buy car insurance, except it's going to be government-subsidized based upon your income. And it'll be, you know, it'll be kind of a crappy product, you know, but it'll be good enough for a lot of people. 
And then for, you know, sort of um, highly competitive employers, highly, you know, reimbursed employees, et cetera, et cetera, just like it is in England. They've got a huge insurance company there called Bupa, which provides private health insurance for people with fancy jobs in England. Um, like that'll exist in America so that you can still buy private insurance and have your private insurance pay for a private doc and a private hospital bed, et cetera, et cetera. But then there will always be subsidized health insurance that any American will get outside of their job. And that, I mean, and I'm not making this up. Like that's already in the democratic playbook. Like that, that is, I mean, and they're not hiding it. I mean, you can, you can look at anything and that's exactly what they want to do. So it'll, and, and Oh, by the way, Every single day. I mean, did you know that Jimmy Carter had had a national health care plan? Did you? you know, he did. I mean, assume everyone did. Everyone does. So every <laughs> single Democratic president has one. So it it will happen. Every time you have a Democratic president, they will move it forward. And you don't even have to have a Democratic president because George W. Bush put in Medicare Part D. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So Republicans will do it too. So it'll it'll happen. Okay. Again, it might take fifty years. But it will happen. The dumb questions always ask, well, you know, how do you pay for that? Because it's it. I'm guessing it won't be really any cheaper. Well, that's uh, che- well, that's already... easy. You just print money, right? We're real good. Right. At well, that. I know, right? That was the answer, right? Yeah, exactly. We just spent it. We're just we ought to. I think this year, what five trillion dollar? I don't know if the last plan actually passed the last two point three trillion dollar plan or whatever. Uh, but that you know, that's like five trillion dollars deficit before we even hit April. <laughs> but well, let's. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about some more, I think, interesting individual aspects of, of the, um, the system. You, know, you had an interesting story about Alcon and an ophthalmologist who, I think it was an ophthalmologist, who was looking with eye drops. And this is something I had never thought about before. Uh, why don't you go in and tell that anecdote? Oh, yeah. Know. And this was from the reporting of Marshall Allen, who's a fantastic healthcare reporter from ProPublica. And is this the story about the size of the eye drops being too big? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so this is where... Uh, an ophthalmologist at Johns Hopkins. So, so eye drops by by design are are, are a larger volume. Your what is it? Your anterior chamber. I don't know. I'm saying the wrong thing. So, hey, it always when you get a eye drop, it it comes out of your eye. You have to have Kleenex because it always runs out of your eye. Right, because it's, it's too much. much. Too it's too large of a volume. So you have to have quote unquote micro drops. If they used micro drops, then they would have to sell you a smaller bottle, and they would have a harder time justifying what they were charging for that bottle. So they essentially want you to waste your eye drops so that they can justify this bottle that's already super small costing 115 bucks or whatever it is right so the um the 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 technology it's not it's not that big of a piece of technology but the technology is there <laughs> to to do it and they went to the largest maker you know uh, alcon which said no they're like listen we, this doesn't help us make money so if, if you're gonna in fact it costs us to make less money so if you have an invention that's going to cause us to make less money, then we don't want to do it. So that's when we talk about euphemisms, right? And patient care. And just know that when you have a largely capitalistic healthcare system, that the, the capitalistic, to a certain extent, in my opinion, this is actually the biggest uh, reason for physician burnout, is that if you're a physician and you're advocating for, the, for your patients as you should be doing, then it's essentially like you and the nurses and whatever other healthcare workers, like you're the only ones. Right. Uh, if you work for a yeah. publicly traded company, you have a fiduciary responsibility to to milk as much profit as humanly possible out of that company. What these healthcare companies say to their investors is very different than what they say in their commercials. And at the same time, what hospitals say now, hospitals don't have investors, but they do issue bonds. And what the hospitals say to the people who buy their bonds is very different. They're, they talk about how they can get patients in the door. Right. The hospitals need people to be sick in order to pay their bonds. Okay, so right. they, so hospitals talk about patient 
volume, like it's, uh, and they talk about service lines. What they, they never use the word human suffering. They don't, they're not like, listen, we're, we're really looking forward to an increase in human suffering because that's going to allow us to pay our <laughs> bonds. But that's what they mean. Yeah. That's what they make, right. they make money off of human suffering. They want more human suffering. And so the, the point with physician burnout is that if that you as an individual are essentially trying to battle single-handedly against an entire world that is not trying to alleviate human suffering the way you are. And every, and, right. and that's why every force is against you. Every force is against you. So yeah, you want to talk about aligning, you want to talk about aligning incentives. That's right. In a capitalistic system, this is the, they are not aligned to alleviate human suffering. They are aligned to make money. And you know, as every other doctor knows, there are many, many situations where alleviating human suffering involves losing money, not making money. Two things. One is, I would say, almost argue that direct primary care is probably, since it kind of like short circuits that all completely, because, uh, you know, I feel like those physicians have a lot of autonomy and they have, and because of the relationship with their patients, they're probably doing more to alleviate suffering and to focus on their patient and actually their condition than most healthcare services in the in the market. But I mean, everyone's got their own incentives, I guess, even in direct primary care. But I, I also wonder, so the interesting thing about the eye drop to kind of go back to that, which I, it's a small thing, figuratively and literally, right? But uh, the eye dropper, even when you buy saline drops for dry eyes, right? You go to the store and buy generic, it's all, I think it's almost all generic pretty much uh, for salt water. They're also the same droppers, right? You would think that you would be a company that would, instead of charging $2 for saline drops, you could charge a dollar and just have a, a micro dropper and you could say it works as many times as something else. And you would think that you would have the ability to you know, find a market share for that because you'd have, you beat someone on price and maybe, you know, value because you don't have drops falling out of your eye all the time, but you don't see that either. Right. I mean, it's, it's a, it's an interesting sort of market. I don't know if it's a market failure. I don't know exactly what you call it. Yeah. So that's a, it's a great question. And, you know, my short answer is I don't, I don't know for sure. I could, I could just speculate and I'll, I would put it in the context of, other let's you know in the example of non-prescription eye drops of other sort of consumer goods that have a sort of planned or intentional inefficiency and i think you know one example of that is just you know bags of of chips right when you open up the bag of chips and it's like <laughs> it's almost all empty already you know or yeah. boxes of cereal where you open the box of cereal and it's like oh the things you know half air anyway and so it just, it seems to be just part of the, I don't want to call it de, uh, deceptive, but the, the, the idea of making a, something appear as though it's bigger than it is. And so, you know, one would think, and so obviously they, I would assume that, you know, people that do, you know, chips and cereal have done studies to show that if you use, you know, more efficient packaging and don't have all that air in it, that it actually doesn't help your sales at all. So there, there might be some sort of analogous process that they use for like saline and things of that sort that are just over the counter. Yeah. Well, I suppose that's, that could be entirely possible. I mean, I've always imagined the problem with cereal and chips is that instead of raising prices, they just put less in. And so they keep the packaging the same size. And so people still think, you know, when you look at it from a marketing standpoint, you think you're getting the same product that you were getting in the past. Only now you're getting, you know, an ounce less of Cheerios or whatever than you had in the past. But 
you don't, it's for the brain, you know, to try and actually make those decisions while you're in the grocery store, it's pretty difficult, but you're much more likely to respond differently if it, the price went up 50 cents for the box. And so if you keep the price same and give you less product, people are more likely to continue buying that. Well, and also, this, but this does, this does get to an interesting point though, that you bring up. And that is that in healthcare, because there is so much, you know, informational asymmetry and uncertainty that all, you know, that people are always looking for quote unquote signals of quality. And because there's such little, you know, quote unquote, understandable quality information, that a lot of times people will use price as their proxy for quality such that they actually don't want the cheaper version of it, right? That's one of the things about healthcare that is, I wouldn't call it necessarily a market failure, but what it does is it, it gets it to the, again, the economic concept of, of inelastic demand, which means that people are, are not as price sensitive to, to, um, to, to, to the price, they don't, they don't have, uh, consume lower quantities of it because if anything, they actually think that the price is justified because it just means that it's a higher quality product, regardless of whether or not that's true. Yeah. And that makes, that makes sense. Cause you see that other products, right? You see it, whether you go out for a steak dinner to a fancy restaurant or that's right. uh, there's a perception, right? Like, uh, or why you buy a brand name purse versus a one that's not, that's that you're paying five times the, the price because there is, yeah, the, <laughs> the expected increased value, I suppose, that is perceived by people. And that's, as you said, it's used as a way, a proxy for quality. And I'll talk to direct primary care docs too, and they will say, when they do marketing, of you know, how much do I price my membership fee? They'll be told, you know, you're undercharging. And actually by, you're charging so little that actually you're giving the perception that you're not a very good service. Yep. And so it's, it'd actually be better for you to make it more expensive. <laughs> and the, um, and, and what's interesting, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, uh, just a very quick story is that one of our, uh, customers at a compass was a small chain of pharmacies in East Texas. So not a big box place. They maybe had like a dozen locations in small towns in East Texas and their, you know, companies evaluate like their generic utilization. And typically a company's generic utilization is like, you know, 85% of their prescriptions that they use are generics and the, 15, the other 15% are brand. Now the brand are much more expensive. So a much larger percentage of their prescription spend is on the brand vis-a-vis -vis the generics. But this pharmacy chain had literally like 98% generic utilization because, oh, because yeah, who knows the most yeah. about generic medications? Pharmacists. Right. <laughs> so the pharmacist <laughs> knew that there was no advantage to the brand name like whatsoever. So they would use generics more than anybody else. Yeah. And, you know, some people would counter and maybe there's some truth to it. You know, as when you have skin in the game, it changes it. Your insurance, quote unquote, is covering your your prescription you pay, you know, whatever the copay is for the maybe you're less likely to be incentivized to get the generic because you're like, oh, well, I might as well get the brand name stuff. It's probably a little bit better on some, that, on some that, level. That's right. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah. Well, I have a feeling we could talk for about three hours, and um, I, th <laughs> which I think we, which would be great. But we have to tie it off right now. So sure. I want to really thank you for. I want to thank you on it. Where is a good place for people to to um, track down your stuff and to to find out more about you and what you're doing? Yeah. So ahealthcarez.com and the ahealthcarez YouTube channel have uh, several hundred uh, healthcare finance educational videos, and I literally had a medical student uh, send me a thank you message saying, this is exactly what 
he wished that he was being taught, but no one ever taught it to him. So whether you're, whether you're in medical school or residency or you're a practicing physician, if you're looking to educate yourself, then uh, please be my guest. Yeah. And I would highly, I'd highly recommend those videos. They're really good. And again, they're, they're quick hitters. So you can just watch it, you know, between cases if you're an anesthesiologist. So uh, Dr. Bricker, thank you so much for being on the paradox. Listen, Dr. Larson, thank you for having me and thank you to your listeners. And I wish you all the best. Thanks again to Dr. Eric Bricker. And one last thing, remember Dr. Doc Lending, I mentioned at the beginning of the show, if you need quick and simple access to cash and are looking for physician-preferred rates, be sure to reach out to Dr. Doc Lending at drpodcastnetwork.com slash doc2doc. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher and share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash the paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.